everybody, and welcome to Rise Up Voices from the Front Lines. My name is Krista Fee, and I'll be your host today. And I'm bringing to you a guest, Brandon Griffith, who is the founder and CEO of Griffith's Blue Heart nonprofit, which prepares, trains, and equips law enforcement for time-sensitive medical emergencies. He's also a deputy sheriff of the Pinell County Sheriff's Office and an out-of-hospital sudden cardiac arrest survivor. So we're going to talk a little bit of his story of survival and the tools and resources that we don't talk about very frequently with our first responders. We are talking a lot about mental health and mental wellness, but we neglect to talk about physical emergencies and what we can do to prepare and prevent these types of incidents. So please welcome Brandon Griffith to the show. Hey, Krista, thank you so much for having me. Hey, I'm, I'm so happy to have you. And I can't wait to, to hear your story and your inspiration and motivation behind this work that you're doing that is so important. I always like to start by getting a little bit of background and finding out a little bit about your, your family life growing up and who you were as a kiddo and kind of what made you go into being a first responder in the first place? Honestly, I was that diagnosed ADHD kid. I was every single teacher's nightmare. I was a troublemaker growing up. I was not a good student, but I was an adrenaline junkie and I am a lifelong martial artist. I started at the age of four. Thank God my parents had the presence of mind to get me that outlet to, to, to funnel it and get discipline and to increase my skills. And in my martial arts training, I was surrounded by military. I was surrounded by um, police officers. I don't know. They just they carried themselves differently. They carried themselves. They had a dark sense of humor. They were always the quickest one with a joke. Uh, I like how cool and calm they carried themselves out in public, and I, I got interested into it. And uh, I kind of came down to either joining the military or going straight into law enforcement, and I fell in love with my high school sweetheart and decided that I wanted to pursue law enforcement. So I ended up going that route. So the choice was going away or staying home, and that's what dictated the <laughs> the career decision. I knew I had something special. You know, she's, she's the best thing that ever happened to me, and I did not want to be away from her. So I figured I'd dig in and go towards law enforcement instead of uh, joining the military and being away from her. I love that. That's awesome. It's so fun to get into all of these reasons why people do what they do in terms of careers, because sometimes it's extraordinarily random. And... <laughs> And then we have, of course, the folks who are like, no, my granddad was a was an officer and my my dad was an officer and there just really wasn't any other pathway for me to go. But stories like you are, are really fun. Um, so <laughs> let's talk a little bit about the career. Like, was it what you expected? Uh, you know, I I love it. You know, I it was the perfect outlet for me being a martial artist my entire life and building these certain skill sets, control, discipline, communication, problem solving. And then obviously learning the martial arts side of it, I was able to apply these skills out in the real world. And I loved it. I'm an adrenaline junkie. I quickly became a field training officer. I went going, we started a community action team. I was able to be part of a fugitive apprehension squad that we put together on double squad days. Um, it was, it was a weird time in the city I was in, cause I went from a very small agency with only about three men on my squad to being one of the fastest growing cities in the country. And we ended up having, you know, eight, nine man squad before I left that agency. And it just, 
all of a sudden we didn't have enough staff to cover what we needed. So you had to become an FTO and a DT instructor and you had to go, okay, you're going to go do crisis intervention. You're going to go do this. You kind of got thrown into many roles so you could never get too comfortable, but you were always adapting your skills. And it's something that I really thrive under. I like to have new challenges. I like to have new perspectives and I like to have new opportunities. So you're a perfect example of the tough guy. You're, you're the model of what most people perceive a first responder to be. How do you balance that with your relationship and your emotions and your well-being personally? I've never really been referred to as the tough guy. I've never really been referred to as that. Most of the time I was the class clown. I was the jokester. I was the guy that was... I was the obnoxious kid doing stuff in class, just trying to get out of doing my assignments. And, you know, um, definitely had the the martial arts side of it. But a lot of that is self-control and a lot of that is self-discipline. So I knew where to apply it and where not to apply it. And it became a balancing act of being, all right, when can you be rambunctious? After the call, we can joke around with the guys. But during this, you got to be serious and focused. And you kind of learn how to hyper-focus that in. And I think that it really helped my relationship. Luckily, my wife, She's been, she's my high school sweetheart. We've been together since, you know, I was, I was a kid and she knew me growing up and she knew who I was going to be. So we were able to kind of funnel that into our relationship and grow together. How important do you feel like communication is in a relationship? Cause you're one of the success stories. I mean, we know what the statistics are in, in first responder generality that we're looking at divorce rates. Some people are estimating over 80%. So you're one of those that survived. How do you do that? I fully agree with you. Communication is everything. And luckily for me, I mean, me and and my wife were EMTs together. We went through the training together back in college. And, you know, at the time when she was working and going through, getting ready to go to medical school, I was working uh, in the private sector. So I was already dealing with suicide attempts. I was already getting in fights. I was already dealing with dead bodies and getting exposed to that even when I was in, you know, high school and college time. So as she got into the medical field and she became a cardiovascular perfusionist, I mean, she's she's with the, the medical crew. She very much understands the realities of it. I mean, even in college, she was held up at a bank. So she she's had guns pointed in her face. So she knows those experiences. She knows what it's like. And we communicate everything. It's not it's 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 no secret that me and my wife are the first to crack jokes and make fun of each other. And we're the first to she's, she's the first one to call me out on all my shit. She does not put up with anything. She doesn't let me. She doesn't let me pull anything over on her and she'll call me out in front of all the guys. And it's the same thing. Like we, we don't have that open line of communication. You don't really have a relationship. You have to have those open lines to grow together. If You just bottle it up and go, it's okay not to talk and get into gruesome details about some of the stuff. But most of the time cops aren't phased by the traumas we, we face in the field. Yes, there are really tough ones that last on you, but a lot of times that's the, the administration side of it, the lack of support, that kind of stress, the promotional side of it dealing with piss poor leadership, like that's what really gets guys down. And when you have a target on your back and you're dealing with other issues, that's what you really have to talk through with your spouse and have plans and backup plans because you never know what life's going to throw at you. Right. That's a really good point. I think, I think a lot of people believe that when we talk about post-traumatic stress disorder and, and it's such a big topic of conversation right now that what we're talking about is I saw a dead body and it, messed with my head and now I'm having problems. And the experiences that we're talking about in the first responder world are are much different. There is, of course, that. There's blood and guts and gore and and all that stuff. Um, And there's tragedy. There's, There's the children that we lose and the people we can't save and all of that kind of stuff. But 
oftentimes the experiences are more relational. They're more, um, they're more in the, the disappointment range. They're the, the, you were supposed to have my back and you didn't. So now there's this moral injury that I'm being blamed for something by the community and I'm being blamed for something by my bosses and my superiors. And I'm in this alone and, and I don't know where to go and I don't know what to do because everything that I thought I believed just fell out from under me. I mean, it can be, but I, I personally believe it's more of an accumulative effect. It just, you don't, we don't have time to process things. Yes, you do have the dead kids. You do have the traumas. You know, nobody prepares you how to deal with certain situations. Like, you know, we had a paraplegic that was raped by her caregiver and she was trying to ask my squad and me to kill her for herself. She didn't want to go on living anymore. They don't prepare you for those horrific situations. They don't prepare you for the, the dead kids and whatnot. But again, we knew we were going to see that stuff. We knew we were going to have that, but it's the, the fact that you can't process that. You can't talk about it. The next year you're, you're going to the next call after that. You have a stack of calls waiting. So as soon as you have that dead kid die in your arms and as soon as the ME picks up the body, you're on to the next one. You're getting chewed out for being late to a stolen bike call. Like there's just, it, it's that accumulative effect, but it really compounds when you've got piss poor leadership. In some areas you see it around the country, we have a real lack of leadership in law enforcement all over the nation. Guys that should have no business being promoted or being promoted and bending the knee to civilians and city council members, and they have no idea what they're doing. And when you get those people out there, it can be extremely frustrating because we know there's not going to be fairness to the job, but when you are actively being targeted and having your hands tied from your job and not being able to do things like that's where the real stress comes in when you're getting disciplined and you're getting in trouble for stuff that you were doing that was perfectly accepted and part of your culture before it can be devastating and it can be, an accumulative effect for these guys that just get burned out. And then eventually something happens and one of those horrific calls hits and it's like, all right, that was the breaking point. Now I have issues and, I, and they, they want to attribute it just to that one thing, but it's been, it's been in the making for several years. Oftentimes we hear people talk about um, how I didn't know what was happening to me. Like 20 years into the, into work in the field, they are now, you know, they're divorced. They're drinking all the time like literally alcoholics, they, uh, they lost their job because they, they can't hold their temper in check. Uh, they're having all these problems. But when you ask what happened, they didn't see the progression themselves. They, it requires other people around us, other people in our community to be able to say, okay, look, you know, are you okay? I noticed that you're short tempered right now. I noticed that you're reacting. I noticed that you're not showing up on time. What's going on with you? And and this idea that we can that we can actually talk about those things ahead of time instead of when it's too late. It's not just the, the talking portion of it. You chemically change your body physically. You have a physiological change in the job. Just like if you take a domesticated pig and throw it in the wild, it'll eventually grow fur and tusks. It's the same thing with these police officers, especially these younger guys and girls that are coming out with no life experience and never been punched in the face before. They're going out into the field and they're chemically changing. Your body is reacting. Your pheromones are going. You're getting uh, your endocrine systems are in overdrive. So we're getting cortisol dumps. We're getting adrenaline dumps. We're getting dopamine from laughing with our buddies. We have in these buildup of chemicals that are literally changing us. And of course, it's going to give you fatigue. It's going to give you headaches. It's going to give you back pain. It's going to give you the shakes. It's going to have. It's going to have this accumulative effect on you. And of course, we're not getting good sleep. We have a sleep epidemic. We're over caffeinated. 
We're, um, we're, we're not taking care of ourselves and our well-being. We're eating at the gas stations half the time. We're going to a drive-thru real quick. So when you're not getting proper sleep, when you're not working out and getting those chemicals that build up off, things change. You start becoming irritable. You're not getting good sleep. Everything, everyone's an asshole. Everyone's doing this. I just want to sit and do nothing for a while. I just want to be in my own zone. I don't want to go out and socialize. Like right now, my body is just trying to recover from the week I just had. And no, I don't want to go to some kid's birthday party. You'll see that happen where guys will just change and they, they're not dealing with it appropriately. And that's where they have to start raising those flags and go, you know what? I am being an asshole. I'm not, I have no drive to do anything right now. All I want to do is crack open a beer and sit in front of the TV. What is wrong with me? And that's where they have to start going. All right, what can I change? How can I prioritize my sleep? How can I prioritize my nutrition? How can I prioritize this? Do I need to go talk to somebody? It's, it's, it's a physical change as well as a mental health change, but everyone only wants to talk about the mental health stuff. And for some guys sitting on a couch, talking to somebody isn't really going to make that difference. It's the lifestyle change and dealing with the chemical buildups in our bodies. Right. The, the neurochemistry is, I want to kind of keep it lame in terms here, but the neurochemistry overload that happens when you can't stop your system, your system naturally has a like 30 second window and then it shuts down normally. Like we get these floods and then they go, go away. But what happens with, with folks in, in this condition is that on switch is on all the time. Those neurochemicals build up. Those neurochemicals are legitimately toxic so there you're poisoning yourself there's literally toxins in your system that you can't get out so when we talk about how do you get rid of those effects how do you get those out of your system what are some things that people ought to be thinking about doing to help get those things out of their systems this is one of the biggest reasons why our number one cause of death is heart disease. Because we build up all these systems, our body has to do something with that neuroepinephrine. Our body has to work it off so our hearts take the toll of it. That's why so many guys have preventional contractions and PACs and all these flutters in their heart and they have all these other complications and sleep issues because, yeah, of course, you just went through this roller coaster ride. It's not even the... It's not even the hard charging ones where shots are fired. Think about every single traffic stop you do. Every time you do a field interview and somebody reaches for their wallet too quickly, you're getting, oh, hey, hey keep your hands where I can see them. Your body's reacting to these things whether you like it or not. So it's this roller coaster of up and down. And then you're bored out of your mind sitting in your patrol car doing nothing for a couple hours. And then you're in an all-out sprint. You're responding to a DV and you're fighting, elbowing somebody, somebody in the face. It's not natural for your body. The, the average citizen sees three to eight critical stress incidents in their entire life. According to the IACP, the cop over 20 years will see seven to 900 of those incidents. So when you start thinking about it, how do we deal with it? And a lot of it is, all right, what do you do when your body's building up all this stuff? As little as 10 minutes of a vigorous exercise can work off those chemicals in your body and help you deplete it. So a lot of guys want to focus on working out before shift. But realistically, at the end of your shift, when you're most tired, you just want to take your vest off, take a cold shower and go to bed. That's when we should be working out. At the end of our shift, even though you don't want to, having that discipline, that mental drive to say, you know what, I'm going to do a quick hit workout. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to do this. I got to burn this crap off, and I want to sleep well tonight. If we can start disciplining ourselves to do that, to start eating better on shift and getting our body the nutrients it needs, because it's already stacked against us. We already have the chemical issues. We already have the sleep deprivation. If we can give our bodies the right nutrients and the right vitamins, the B vitamins and your magnesiums and all the stuff that help regulate your, your, your glands, you're going to start seeing some big changes. Staying hydrated, being able to talk to other people, having outlets outside of work, being able to have something that zones or relax you, whether that be mountain biking or boxing or reading. I don't care what it is. You got to figure out what works for you 
But being able to incorporate these things on a regular basis is going to help you on that marathon of your career and prevent you from having those strokes, those uh, heart attacks, the cardiac arrest, all these other incidences that are killing cops and firefighters and military members all the time. So you've always been physically fit. You've always focused on being very active. Uh, and still you had your own experience. Uh, tell us a little bit about what led up to that and what happened to you. Yeah, so anytime, every, anytime I tell anybody that I'm a cardiac arrest survivor, they automatically go to the stigmas. They, they think about the old man clutching his chest, having a heart attack. They think there must be something wrong. You got to have a congenital defect. What's your family history? They, they want to pawn it off. They don't think about electrical malfunctions. They don't think that cardiac arrest and heart diseases are number one killer. Heart disease kills 17.9 million people around the globe per year. It's our number one cause of death. And just in the U.S., we lost 697,000 Americans last year. But everyone assumes that, you know, it had to be maybe he was eating too many cheeseburgers or it was stress or it was this. But the reality is from the time you're in the womb till the day you die, your heart sends off these electrical impulses. And it causes the four chambers of your heart to beat in the right sequence. It takes one misfire for you to drop dead like a light switch. And an electrical malfunction can put you into what's called ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation, which are the two deadly arrhythmias. So me, not a, not a stress in the world. Everything was going good. I was 26 years old. I just made my SWAT team. My wife had just been accepted to medical school. We got our house. Things are going well. And that night we were supposed to go to a concert. I was sitting at home reading a book when I had my cardiac arrest. So I put it down. I take two steps towards my door. I say, hey, I'm going to take the dog out, take him to the restroom real quick. And it hit me like a freight train. Uh, you ever had someone jump out and scare you? You know, and your heart like skips that beat? Well, imagine that flutter happening nonstop and you can't recover from it. Even though I collapsed in about a second, second and a half, I experienced time distortion because weird things happen in critical stress incidents. You get auditory exclusion, you get tunnel vision, you get loss of fine motor skills and time distortion. And I was definitely experiencing that. Everything just slowed way down. And I remember bearing down and I remember my jugular veins sticking out and going, Oh, something's not right. And I remember trying to force myself to do combat breathing. Well, for those that don't know, combat breathing helps lower your respiration rates, your heart rates. It helps calm your nerves. But it turns out when you're in cardiac arrest, there's no blood being pumped to your lungs. So they physically cannot expand with oxygen. So I started doing agonal breathing and convulsing. My wife turns around to see me go, <coughs> trying to force myself to breathe, but I physically can't. So my face is turning this dark, dark purple. She sees this, immediately starts to call 911 on her phone, drops it on speaker. I collapse into my bookshelf. She goes to catch me. I fall right over top of her because I'm six foot four. She's five foot three. I slam my head right through the middle of the wall. And I'm looking out into my hallway, and my vision's going this dark, dark purple. It's nothing like I've ever experienced in the field. Like normally tunnel vision, it's like looking through a coffee straw. It's really hard to focus. You're not seeing the whole picture. Everything's really hyper-focused. This, everything was wide and everything was dark, dark purple and like fluttering out. I was literally watching my surroundings get darker and darker. And the way it was explained to me was that it was literally the blood leaving my blood, my brain and my eyes. I was watching myself die. And here I'm trying to think, I'm trying to look at my training because I want to stay in the fight. You never give up. But in that moment, here I'm an EMT, I'm a cop, I've done CPR, I don't know how many times. But in that moment, there is not a damn thing I can do to save my life. That feeling of helplessness is something I don't wish on anybody. And I remember distinctly going, shit, this is it. And that's when I, I dropped dead right on the floor. My wife rolled me over. She started doing compressions. She started working on me. She did CPR on me for four and a half minutes before the first uh, first officer arrived. 
But during that time, I mean, she was such a stud and so, so, so in the moment right there. She even had the thought process to put my legs up on the couch in Trendelenburg. Trendelenburg is a position we use for patients that are in shock that causes the blood flow and oxygenation in the legs to force, have gravity force it down to their core. I can't get ER docs to do that. And she did that work on her high school sweetheart. She had to stop when the officer arrived, pull the dog back, unlock the door. The first cop that arrived did not have an AED, but he came in, sees me down the floor and started doing compression. He took over compressions and just did a phenomenal job. He worked on me until about the nine and a half minute mark when fire and EMS got there. They show up, pull my body in the living room where they got more room to work. They had to IO drill me. They dropped in the OPAs, busted my lip open, cut my clothes off, did the whole thing. They shocked me multiple times and all they were able to bring me back, but I was dead for 16 and a half minutes. When I got brought back, I remember just pain. My, I could taste the blood in my mouth. I could feel where they drilled through my leg. Uh, my chest had been compressed in. I could feel all that, that dull pain everywhere. My arms and legs hadn't been oxygenated properly, so they just felt like daggers everywhere, like that really painful uh, pins and needles feeling when you fall asleep on it. But my head had to be the worst. With every heartbeat, I was getting this white flash, and it felt like someone was just taking a sledgehammer to the top of my head. And I just, it was not, it was relentless. And I, I don't remember this, but according to my wife and the crew, I sat up and started pushing the guys off me. My wife grabbed me by the face and she said, don't leave me. I said, I won't before I collapsed back on the gurney again. And then I do remember feeling the sway of the gurney and hearing the firefighters walk on the rocks in my front yard. From that moment on, I remember everything from dying in my death, coming back. But from that moment, from hearing the footsteps on my rocks, the next five days are a complete blur. I, my brain had hypoxia. I had they busted it into the wall. Like I was recovering from cardiac arrest. Like neurologically, I didn't know. They didn't know if I was going to be intact. And I, I was cracking jokes, according to the crew. I was in the back of the ambulance calling the guys hose draggers and cracking jokes. I'm still friends with the guys to this day, but it was just one of those weird things. The next five days, I'm just having glimpses. And I remember, you know, waking up and I'm talking to my wife, passing back out. Waking up, the guys from my team are there, passing back out. I wake up, I'm crying for some reason, pass back out. I'm slow dancing with my wife on the way to the bathroom. Just little things like that. So they go through everything. They do every single test possible. They bring in all these experts and guess what they found out? Nothing. There's nothing wrong with my heart. Perfectly healthy. There's no diagnosis. Structurally, it's perfect. There's no electrical diseases. They broke my blood down to chromosomal levels. No idea why I had my cardiac arrest. I'm like, is it going to happen again? We don't know. We're going to put this defibrillator in your chest just in case it happens again. So you get shocked instantly. And they basically told me that they're putting this device in my chest and they hope it doesn't happen again, but they don't have enough information to give me any variables. So in a literal heartbeat, my entire life changed. I'm 26 years old. I lose my spot on my SWAT team. And now my command staff, except for Chief Mark Mann, who had my back, is trying to tell me I'm damaged goods and I'm out the door. They're trying to force me into medical retirement. They're like, we can't have a cop with a defibrillator in his chest out here in the field. It was like, you know, we'll try to find a civilian position for you, the PD. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You kidding me? You're telling me yesterday I was good enough to be on your SWAT team and I'm a defensive tactics instructor and an FTO. Literally, in a heartbeat, my entire life changed. Now I may not even be able to be a cop anymore. So that was something that's a very hard pill to swallow. I mean, we all know we could die in the line of duty, but how many first responders are truly prepared to not be able to put their uniform on ever again the next day? Do you have enough money saved up? Do you have enough, Do you have a job lined up? Do you already have the skills? Have you prepared for that moment for the reality of, hey, you can't do this tomorrow. If you get in that car accident, if you have a brain aneurysm, if you get stabbed or shot, 
have you really prepared for that moment? Most most people are going to be a resounding no. And that was exactly what I was put in. And I had to fight to go back to the, back to the field. I had to go against my command staff and I had to bring in researchers and fight risk management. And I was successful after about a half a year, but I'm one of the only cops, if not the only cop in the country to return to full active duty with a defibrillator implanted in my chest. And that was only the beginning of the next part of my journey. <laughs> <laughs> so what comes next? <laughs> well, I, as soon as I got back to the field, I started realizing how underutilized and how unprepared cops really are when it comes to medical emergencies. And you look at it, we're on scene first 90% of the time. We're already pulling kids out of the pool. We're already plugging bullet holes. We're already putting tourniquets on. We're using Narcan for drug overdoses. We're being thrown into these situations with very minimal training. Across the country, you're lucky if you get a first aid block in the academy, and then it's up to your agencies what they want to do afterwards. Most places don't have a mandate and don't have require continuing training. Some agencies won't have CPR training ever again. Some agencies will maybe do a stop the bleed course, or maybe you do a refresher every one to five years. It's really just kind of, hey, get in there. But it's a very different ball game when that mom hands you that blue baby and is expecting you to know what to do and to save that kid. When your buddy's shot and fire, it's not safe for fire and EMS to come in and you have to step up, are you prepared to plug those bullet holes? Are you prepared to actually work on your buddy? This is what cops are being thrown into with very minimal training. But we're not protected by the Good Samaritan laws. We're not protected by that because we're not Good Samaritans. We're not bystanders. We are required first responders. We don't get the same training. We don't get the same support as fire and EMS. We don't have established systems. We are smack dab in the middle of that and expected to figure it all out. So I really started realizing how unprepared cops were, and I wanted to do something about it. So I started just kind of helping my surrounding agencies and acquiring AEDs, you know, talking about my story, helping them get AEDs for good prices and working with distributors and manufacturers. And it just kept growing from there. It was like, okay, we got them now, but we don't even get dispatched these calls or how are we going to budget for this? How are we going to have, what, what policies do we need? Do we need medical direction? Are we in compliance with the laws of our state? It just kept growing and growing. So I had to bring in chiefs of police. I had to bring in dispatch managers. We had to create custom programs to support law enforcement. And eventually I'm like, you know what? There's something really to this. We started getting programs implemented and we started getting life saves like crazy. We started handing out life-saving medals like they were candy. And I'm like, I can save far more lives and make a much bigger impact implementing entire life-saving programs for police departments than I can individually on the streets. So I had to make a tough decision and decide to drop to reserve status. I'm still a sworn police officer. I still go out and get my hours, but I'm no longer a full-time police officer. I wanted to focus and really make this organization a nonprofit. So we became a 501c3 public charity and started working with organizations. We donate AEDs. We do. We created a whole outstanding high-performance resuscitation training program that is pretty much blowing everybody else out of the water. I mean, it's it's just grown into this incredible thing. And now we're able to literally work with agencies and quadruple survival. And it's something that I am extremely passionate about. I love that. I love that you have, you found a need and you refused to back down. You refused to go, oh, well, officers aren't supposed to do that. We'll, we'll just wait for everybody else. We'll wait for everyone else to fix it. Because often systemically, that seems to be the approach is, oh, well, we don't want that responsibility. If we take on that, then that's just another thing we all have to learn, right? That's more training. That's more, <laughs> that's more risk. That's more this or the, you know, and there's that idea that I still hear uh, arguments that Narcan shouldn't be 
an officer's responsibility, that they don't want to learn that. They don't want to carry that because that exposes them to risk. And what if they do it and the person isn't actually overdosing? What if they do it and it's a cardiac arrest? They're not trained for that. How do I tell the difference? Like, I, I hear those arguments. So I'm like, you put your head. I laugh at every single one of those. That's all. That is all bullshit, let me tell you. So, like, it, everyone talks about that, but the, the fact is, is that we're on scene first. We're already doing it. And now, because we are required first responders, cops are getting sued around the country for doing nothing, for saying, hey, I called the fire department. I did my job. Hey, roll fire. And they're standing there. They're getting sued all over the country. They shoot somebody and they stand there and they don't provide medical aid. They're getting sued because the, the, the citizens are no longer going to stand for that, especially now that we have body cameras on. You can no longer sit there when that mom hands you a blue baby and say, hey, I called the fire department. You know, they should be here soon. They expect you to be competent and be able to do something. You signed up. Preservation of life is your highest priority, right? So you hear these guys say that, oh, yeah, we shouldn't be carrying Nar Narcan's pharmaceuticals. Look, this stuff is not complex. We're not we're not asking cops to be EMTs. We're not going through medical training. We're not doing all this stuff to say, hey, you got to be able to do this and that. We're going to make you infield surgeons. We're going to make you go through 18 Delta. We're not doing that. We're Look. I can teach an orangutan to put two stickers on someone and press a button. It's not complicated to take Narcan, put it in someone's nose, and give it a squirt. It does no harm. Even if they're not overdosed, that Narcan is not going to do anything to them. And that's some of the stuff that we see. It's just you'll, you'll see old school-minded guys that grew up in a different time being like, that's the fire department's job. If I wanted to do that, I would have put in another application. All right, well, when your buddy's shot, what the hell are you going to do? When he's shot in the fire department, it's not safe because someone's barricading the car. I'm, I know, I'm pretty sure you met, I, I think he's been on your show, my good buddy, Chris Hoyer, he's on our board of directors. When Dave Glasser was shot, fire and EMS refused to go in for 40 something minutes. They were over there working on their buddy by themselves. So you're telling me it's not your responsibility, but what about your partner? What about when they get exposed and they overdose when they're going into a drug house? What happens when they have a cardiac arrest and, and fire and EMS is 20, 30 minutes away? Do you really want to stand there being unprepared and say, I called the fire department? That's, that, that's a cop out. That is, that's old school mind thinking. And it's very rare, especially the younger guys, the guys that are already out there, they're doing it. And if you did a poll with police one and within like the, the first one to three years, I think like 90 something percent of cops had already done CPR or something like that. And most of us are already putting it in. If you look at the numbers alone, we prepare so much for those fatal police shootings, right? Last year we had 1,176 fatal police shootings. 697,000 Americans died from heart disease. Almost 100,000 people died from drug overdoses. 60,000 people had died from blood loss. What are you more likely to run across? And when you're on scene first, if your fire department's 8, 12, 20 minutes out, you're going to stand there with a thumb up your ass and do nothing? Like that's when I hear so when I hear some of those arguments, it's like, come on, you got to be kidding me. Like you guys are already sitting there. Are you really going to do nothing when that kid's dying? Like that's BS. One of one of the things that Battle to be our organization is working on um, because of so many of these interviews that I've done with officers who have experienced uh, getting shot, getting ambushed, losing a partner uh, is personal active shooter response kits that go on their belts so that they literally have wound pack and bleed stop and, you know, some of the other things that most people aren't going to really know what they are, but some of the I very seldomly run into organizations that don't have that. Most organizations across the country standardized this practice after Columbine in the 90s. They were like, hey, look, we're already on scene. This is this is for self-preservation. If I get shot, if I get stabbed, if I'm in that car accident, I need to be able to save my own life for self-aid. 
And it's very seldom that you come across an agency that doesn't issue tourniquets, chest seals, hemostatic gauze. We're trying to take it to the next level because cops, firefighters, military, we're at a 70% higher risk of heart disease. We're trying to get AEDs for us when we go home, when we're sitting there with our spouses, because we're the ones that are dropping dead from it at an alarming rate. Right. And every gym in the country has an AED on the wall. Every daycare has an AED on the wall. Like it's standardized equipment for any business that has people <laughs> exerting themselves in any way. So we're already aware as a community that that there is a usefulness for these devices and that they're simple enough that everyone can use them. Right. What AED training takes, what is it, four hours, three hours? There is no requirement of certification. Like everyone wants to look at this and go, oh, this nonprofit over here says I have to have a CPR card. You don't need to be certified to save a life. Look, you look at these programs out there, you can literally watch a 60 second video online and save someone's life. You're already on scene. It's not complicated. But yeah, I mean, you, you have these courses, the BLS courses that are like two to four hours. And most cops go through that in the academy and they get a refresher at some point throughout their careers if they do that. But it's really not complicated. The device does all the work for you. You press a button. It's like, stay calm, check responsiveness, apply stickers. And it's like, Hey, look, there's pictures. Cool. Like, it's not like it's overly complicated. It does the work for you. But you still get guys like, I'm not trained to do that. I'm like, my 80-year-old grandma can do it. And you see all these bystanders doing it on the side of the road with no medical experience. You're telling me a trained cop can't apply an AED? <laughs> so an AED could have could have helped you. Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, there's a lot of misconceptions out there. Like everyone's, you know, CPR saves lives. Okay, CPR does not save lives. CPR circulates oxygenated blood long enough for you to receive defibrillation. Defibrillation is what saves lives. And all the stuff we see in movies where they're flatlining and they code and you see, that, that's all BS. Like the heart is not flatlining. It's called asystole. When, these, when people are in cardiac arrest, basically there's two rhythms, right, that are shockable. There's BTAC, which is, means the heart is beating so fast that it's not able to fill back up with blood and pump it back out. So your body's not getting any, any oxygenated blood circulating. And there's ventricular fibrillation, which is what I had, where the heart's in its quivering motion. It needs that shock to go back to a normal arrhythmia, right? So that, that's... That's where AEDs actually come in. So AEDs are the ones that actually save people's lives. I can do CPR all day. They're not coming back up. They're not going to wake back up. It's like the TV where you go one, two, three, four, and they wake back up and start pushing you off them. That, that's all TV Hollywood stuff. You know, I, I've been on scene and lost and gotten pulses back. The longest I've personally done CPR was 40-something minutes. 18 and a half minutes, we're able to get pulses back in and out. Like People just need to start seeing the realities of what resuscitation really is. Right. Right. As a trained responder, it's always funny to see the television representation of that because people are actually breathing or coughing and they're doing CPR. What's and that old saying? Uh, the old, the only thing more full of shit than a cop is a TV cop. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, education, knowledge, not, we'll, we'll go to GI Joe. Knowledge is power. Like none of this stuff is as mysterious as it seems and it's all really very common sense and don't be afraid don't be afraid to ask the questions don't be afraid to take the next step to to learn about how you can protect yourself and those people that you love because this is not just for officers this is for everybody really this is our number one cause of death and what people don't realize like you see all these programs out there for public access to fibrillation right 
Hell yeah, we need AEDs at our airports, at our sporting events, at our athletic training centers. I'm all about that. Don't get me wrong. But that's only 13% of cases. 77% of cardiac arrests happen in the home. How many people are prepared when their 15-year-old daughter drops dead in front of them? Most people don't think, don't think about it. They're not prepared for their own loved ones or when they go down. You know, too often our first responder spouses get complacent. They go, if anything ever happens, my wife's a cop. My husband's a firefighter. He'll take care of it or he'll do it. But when we're the ones that are at the highest risk. Like when I dropped dead, if my wife didn't know what she was doing, I wouldn't be here today. So it's one of those things that it's it's not complicated, you know, especially with handling CPR. Push hard, push fast, don't stop. Put apply an AED, blood, uh, you know, doing dealing with blood loss, plug a hole, direct pressure, apply a tourniquet. We're not talking about rocket science here, but some basic measures to teach our family members and those around us are going to make all the difference and having a plan and being prepared just like we play the what if what if i'm at the grocery store and someone starts cranking off rounds what is my wife going to do do we have a code word do we have this start playing those what ifs what happens if i get sideswiped right now and my wife starts losing consciousness next to me do i have an ifac that i can reach within my or is it locked up in the trunk where i can't get to it little things like that starting to play those what ifs what happens if my perfectly healthy nine-year-old drops dead and stops breathing. Am I prepared for that? Do I have an AED in my home? Oh, I can go get one on Amazon right now. It's not like it's complicated. So where can people find out more about your organization and what you do? So we do a whole bunch of unique services for law and predominantly, I mean, we work with law enforcement. So we implement life-saving programs. We help them get grants. We help we donate AEDs. We do high-performance training. We do services, dispatch protocols, all the systems of care that actually make it work. Because sometimes you'll have places that just don't know where to begin. Like, hey, this sounds great. We want to get AEDs. We want to train our guys. But we've never really done this before. Our fire guys are recommending this. Or our medical directors are recommending this. Look, this is what we're going to do. We're going to come in and we're going to help you create a custom program that meets your needs. So if they want to check us out, we're at griffithblueheart.com. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn at Brandon Griffith. we got Griffith Blue Heart on Instagram. There's plenty of ways you guys can reach out to us and we can help create a custom program to help you save more lives in your community. And additionally, if you would like to support his program. <laughs> that too. We are a nonprofit. We do take donations, but obviously we, we're public servants first. We want to help cops. So any grants, any donations, any, we have a lot of cool fundraisers coming up. We do stuff like carbine builders. We do mountain bike rides. We've got speaking events and training events, and we got some cool stuff that's coming up. Uh, Sheriff Lamb's going to be speaking at our Shield of the Hearts event coming up in October at the Embassy Suites Biltmore. Come on out and support us because, you know, these, these programs are not cheap, and it takes a lot to help cops save lives. Absolutely. Awesome. So any last words of wisdom to our listeners? Make sure that you are earning each day you're getting because you have no idea when your time is up. I never thought in a million years at 26 that I was going to drop dead. And I didn't know, I still don't know if my heart's going to crap out on me again. It could happen right now. We're having this conversation, but I do know that I try to earn every single day I'm given. I make sure that those around me know how much I love them. I don't, I make sure that I try to, to have as little regrets as possible and I want to do something to be better each day. At the end of each day, I look at myself and say, was I a good husband today? Was I a good father? Did I help somebody? Did I make an impact? You can't answer those questions. Are you really earning the time you have? Because you, It can literally change in a heartbeat. You can walk out and get struck by lightning. You can have a brain aneurysm. You can have a cardiac arrest. You look at the realities of the world we're in, especially first responders, how quickly guys are getting ambushed nowadays. Earn each day you're given, savor each moment, and make sure you take and prioritize the things that matter most in your life, like your family. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Brandon. Uh, 
I'm really excited to share all of this information. It's definitely a topic that is not talked about enough and not enough is known. So thank you so much for being with me today and I will see you soon. Thank you, Krista. Thank you guys so much for being with us on this episode of Rise Up Voices from the Frontlines. And I will make sure to put a link to Brandon's organization underneath this podcast so you can easily reach him if you need more information or if you'd like to support him. If you'd like to support Battle to Be, the 501c3 nonprofit that runs this podcast, please go to B-A-T-T-L-E, the number two, B-E.org. And we serve those who serve country and community in numerous ways. And most of you know about the Ferryman Project, our memorial mission, which takes plaques to families of the fallen all across the country and represents those who are underrepresented at events and memorials, holding space for those families who feel like they've been excluded from the first responder family. And our, our biggest thing that we want you to remember is no matter how your loved one has left, the light of their service is not diminished by their cause of death. And we need to remember as a society that behind every uniform, behind every badge is a real human being, a real life who has thoughts, feelings, emotions, dreams, and a family. And every single one of those lives needs to be remembered and honored and respected. So again, if you'd like to support our podcast, you can easily do so with the button down below or go over to battletobe.org. Hope to see you in September at our fundraising gala event in Comoro, Texas. You can also live stream that event. So if you want to support us by being there, but you can't actually be in the state, that's also an option. Thank you so much. And I can't wait to see you guys again next week. Please feel free to leave comments and questions and we'll definitely make sure that one of us can answer you.